You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. I'd already sang those songs one time this morning in the early service. Um, man. You know, if, if what we just sang is not true, then what I'm standing here doing this morning is stupidity, the Apostle Paul says, basically. It's pointless. Uh, That's why it all ties together. Uh, Easter is not just about one Sunday during the year that we talk about, celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, It's because Jesus is our living hope that we gather here week in and week out and celebrate life in Christ day in and day out uh, and live and breathe and move and all those things uh, made possible through him. So good to see you this morning. Always good to see new faces, meet new friends. It seems we're doing that every single week. Uh, My aging brain is getting stretched every week to remember names and faces and all those things. So if we've met and maybe met again and perhaps even a third time, uh, I'm sorry about that. But uh, it is so good to see you today. I hope that you've had a good week. Uh, I know that... uh, uh, some of you maybe are still uh, mad about March Madness. I'm not mad yet about March Madness. Check with me about 6 o'clock this evening, and that may be a different story. But um, uh, I love this time of year. Like Griff, I love uh, th- this week is opening day for baseball, and uh, it's just a, a great, great time. And uh, it, it was not an overstatement that we are entering into a, an incredibly busy season, not only with uh, our regular schedule with camps coming up, with both kids camp, student camp, uh, Wyoming mission trip, but we're in the process of building a new building, and so there's just a lot going on right now. What I just want to encourage you with, just pastorally for a moment, uh, is in the midst of your, maybe even your regular busy summer schedule, I know some of you have kids and grandkids playing ball and all of those things, and you've got plans for vacations and all that, please do not take a break from God. I've been pastoring for a long time, and um, there's some people, it's like they, they pretty much just like they check out for the entire summer, and you hope to see them back in the fall. Uh, I know that some of us will be away at different times. We plan to have a little time away, all of those sorts of things, but do your best to stay engaged, uh, certainly in your relationship with the Lord. God doesn't take a vacation from you, okay, so you shouldn't take a vacation from him. Uh, and, so, uh, and also stay engaged in the life of the church as you are able And uh, this is an important, important season for us, and I just want to encourage you with that. Well, we're in John chapter 5 this morning. Hopefully, uh, you can find that spot in your Bible. We've been in John chapter 4 for several weeks now. Hey, let me just go ahead and tell you uh, kind of uh, the plan for uh, the next uh, few months anyway. We plan to uh, continue in John's gospel through the spring. Uh, Lord willing, we're going to get through chapter 6, okay, uh, before the spring uh, ends and summer starts. And then we're going to pause our study of the Gospel of John uh, for a few weeks in the summer and do a summer in the Psalms. And we're going to be looking at the different genres uh, found in the book of Psalms. And uh, so you can look forward to that. And then we'll return to John's Gospel, Lord willing, in the fall. So uh, just uh, some things to look forward to there over the next few months. But this morning, we are now in chapter 5. And as we do, I want to just briefly review for a moment. I know some of you are just joining us, and that's fine. Uh, The Lord's ministry began well. Um, The eternal, 
uh, son of God, as we saw in chapter 1 there. A bold announcement by John the baptizer immediately yielded five disciples with unreserved uh, commitment to follow Jesus. Then his turning water into wine at a marriage at Cana in Galilee strengthened his disciples' faith. He taught Nicodemus, performed signs in Jerusalem, redeemed a Samaritan woman, many of her Samaritan neighbors. Uh, Last week, we saw that he healed a Gentile official's son, uh, all of which resulted in multitudes from every quarter of Israel trusting Jesus as Savior, as Messiah. And while the Lord's ministry sparked uh, some conflict, to be sure, in general, uh, up to this point, Uh, People have responded to the word of God with belief. But then like the first chill of winter that uh, you feel on an autumn breeze, something begins to change. Not everyone believed right away. A few began to oppose him openly, followed by more opposition. The Son of God came to the world to shine the light of truth, and yet some minds remained darkened. Instead of uniting Israel, the word began to create sharp divisions that that began to come into clear view for us. In fact, some commentators uh, give this next section of John's gospel, really starting here in chapter 5 through the end of chapter 12, they call it the authentication of the word for two reasons. First, Jesus will give five more signs than we've already seen, authenticating himself as the promised Messiah, as well as God in human flesh. Secondly, the truth of Jesus Christ will authenticate those given to him. The words and the deeds of Jesus will separate believers from the world, identifying them as his own, trusting souls he promised to preserve until the last day. And as believers are separated from their unbelieving peers and neighbors, the world, in John's narrative, begins to take on a more menacing character. We see more clearly a separation of the, of the pretenders from the true professors. And by the end of Jesus' public ministry, the line between believers and non-believers is unmistakable. And so we're going to pick it up in verse number 1 of chapter 5. We'll read down through verse number 15 today, so I hope that you'll follow along uh, as I read. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic, called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been there a long time. He said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, while I am going another steps down before me. So verse number 8 tells us, Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. Everybody say, Uh-oh. <laughs> yep. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's on the Sabbath. And it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. That's a great place for a really pious religious gasp. This guy's carrying his bed on the Sabbath. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. 
Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. We're continuing. I want you to just pick up this connecting piece to even where we'll be next week. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Again, there's a question I want to ask this morning. I want you to contemplate for just a moment. Why did Jesus heal people? Why did Jesus heal people? Have you ever suffered the consequences of making a false assumption? Or maybe you've had someone falsely assume something about you. Maybe about your motivations. We often assume things to be true which simply aren't. And much of the time, those assumptions are so minor, the consequences uh, are not serious to our lives. We might assume, for example, that the post office or the bank is open, and so you get in your car and you drive to either the post office or the bank to handle some business, and you get there and remember that uh, it's a national holiday. You assumed wrongly. Uh, it's an inconvenience, but not a big deal. You can recover, right? Most, most false assumptions have one level of consequences, but many people have incorrect assumptions about Jesus. And as a result, they have incorrect assumptions about his followers as well. Even people who have been Christians for a long time can suffer from some false assumptions and can even spread those false assumptions to others, causing major consequences. One such major false assumption that people make is that Jesus only heals those who truly believe in him. Or even more dangerously, some people assume that Jesus always heals those who truly believe in him. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, we do read some instances of Jesus miraculously healing people, which seems to establish this connection between faith and healing. So people take these miracle stories from the Gospels and assume that it's an absolute rule that faith and healing must go together. This can be a misstep and it can be dangerous when we take a legitimate connection and make it an absolute rule. Let me give you an example that kind of works the other direction. Job's friends, if you're familiar with the story of Job, he suffered a great deal, right? Anytime we suffer, like I'm going through a Job experience right now. Job's friends did this when they connected suffering with sin. And many Christians do it when they connect healing with faith in such an absolute way. Among other things that it teaches us, today's passage disproves this false assumption. As we see Jesus take the sovereign initiative to heal a man who did not seek healing from Jesus, who didn't show any evidence of faith in Jesus, and who didn't even seem to respond with gratitude or faith after he was healed by Jesus. Sometimes I think we view this connection between faith and healing much like you might the, uh, if you've ever been to the Mavs game, there's typically a point in the game, maybe when things are kind of tight, maybe one t team is kind of taking the momentum and, and they're running with it. And so they'll put, this, uh, they'll put this meter up on the screen, right? And the idea is that the crowd has to get loud enough to push the needle over into the red, right? Like, and it'll say loud, louder, loud, you know, get really loud. And everybody's just screaming at the top of their lungs, you know? Like, I think some people, that's how they view faith and healing. 
They say there's some sort of faithometer, and if I can just push the needle over into the red, then there's this point where God will go, finally enough, I'm going to extend healing. But is that really biblical? (laughs) I think from the text today, we're going to see that it's not. And I think we probably all know people that we would say are anything but a follower of Jesus Christ. And it appears that they've, they've experienced a full recovery, perhaps, uh, after, after a serious diagnosis and even prognosis. I think about the response of Lance Armstrong after his bout with cancer. I mean, you should, you should Google it. It's pretty alarming. To think that a guy who's, who, who admittedly really had no real connection with God certainly wasn't going to give God credit for, for any health that he experienced after his initial diagnosis and all those things and what he supposedly accomplished on a bicycle after that, he wasn't going to give God the credit for that. And so some of us would be left to go, what gives? That we know of good people who are committed followers of Jesus by, by all accounts And yet they've been dealing with something for a very long time. It's something that I personally struggled with after my diabetes diagnosis. And any type 1 diabetic would probably tell you they've experienced what we diabetics call diabetic burnout. There are times and there are seasons when you just get sick and tired of being a diabetic. And having to count every carbohydrate that you put in your mouth. And having to you know, make sure you're dosing yourself just right with the right amount of insulin to cover the carbs that you've eaten. And to make sure that you don't give yourself too much or too little. And all. Sometimes it just gets exhausting. And so trust me, I, I would love to be done with diabetes. And I am so looking forward to the day when, God willing, I will be, right? It's treatable. I'm thankful for that. But there's no cure right now. So unless the Lord chooses in his sovereignty to heal my body, to restore my pancreas to its normal function and all of those things, I will not experience that until I'm glorified and I have a new body that doesn't need an insulin pump and all that kind of stuff. So this is something that we all kind of struggle with. It seems like, man, good people get sick and sometimes die. Well, people that we would say are bad people, they seem to do okay. How do we we deal with all this? So there's some key characters in the narrative that we see here today in John chapter 5. I want you to notice, first of all, this sad, sinful man. I want us to take a minute to set the scene before we focus our attention on this man. It says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Now that phrase there, after this, that's translated in the ESV for us, is literally after these things in the original Greek. That's important because in the plural, that would indicate that this doesn't take place immediately after the previous event. So some unspecified period of time elapsed after the healing of the Gentile official's son and this event. And that's often the case as you study scripture. Okay, many times it can read like, and like the next day or even the next moment this happened. There's often some, some time lapse in there, some things that have transpired that are not recorded for us in Scripture. God's Word tells us there are so many things that Jesus did that we have no record of. If we did, they would fill books, like literally. Okay, and so we know that there's sometimes a break here. We don't know for sure in this particular case which feast this is. It's either Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles. If it's Passover, then this is one year after Jesus' last visit to Jerusalem. And you remember what happened then, right? 
That's when he overturned the tables and the money changers and he drove out the animal sellers and then later had this middle-of-the-night conversation with a religious leader named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. If it's the Feast of Tabernacles, then it's actually been more than a year and we don't have any record of what Jesus did during this year's Passover. I think this is most likely Passover because of the great significance that Passover has and also because Passover was the only truly mandatory feast, uh, uh, the one that the Jews were required to attend if possible. So the sheep gate was so called because it was near the temple and the sheep being brought in uh, for sacrifice in the temple would pass through this gate. This pool of Bethesda might have been used by the shepherds to wash themselves before entering the temple complex. It's interesting to have this gate explicitly mentioned in John's gospel where Jesus has already been called the Lamb of God by John the Baptist. So undoubtedly there were people in that day who were making the connection here. Later in John chapter 10... Jesus will call himself both the gate of the sheep and he will refer to himself as the good shepherd. And so at festival time, you've got to understand, this area would have been bustling with people, including many shepherds leading sheep to the temple for sacrifice, especially at Passover. And by the way, the pool of Bethesda has actually been excavated. Uh, as we, and so we know exactly where it is. For many years, skeptics of the Bible, uh, they had scoffed here at this idea of a pool with five roofed colonnades, which seems to imply a five-sided pool. But the site uncovered, check this out, does indeed have five covered areas situated around and between what they believe may have been actually two pools, which form one complex. Four colonnades on, uh, for the four sides and another for the area between the two pools or another uh, that divides the pool in half, we might say. Now, we're not sure why there were two pools. Some would suggest it was one for men, one for women. Perhaps only one was used for washing. The other was used as a reservoir to store water. We just don't know with certainty. But after the scene had been briefly set here, we are introduced to this sad man stuck in a very sad situation. We're told that in in the five roofed colonnades lay a multitude, many invalids. And they're described more specifically as blind and lame and, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been there for 38 years. Some of you kids, to be 38 years old is not very old, okay? I know you may think it is because your parents are that age. But 38 years is a long time to be in this condition and to kind of be in this spot, so to speak. Now, we don't know exactly how long he was right here at this spot, at the pool of Bethesda, but it was a period of time. Uh, The Bible tells us that Jesus already knew that, uh, that he had been there for for a good while. And so uh, later, after he is healed, we, we are told that he is also a sinful man. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple, Scripture says, and said to him, Sir, you see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Uh, verse 14. Now, we make assumptions about disabled people as well, don't we? Particularly in Jesus' day, many people assumed that anyone who suffered from any kind of an ailment, whether it was blindness or they were lame or, or paralyzed, that they were being judged by God for sin. 
Because of the words of Jesus in response to the disciples' question about a man born blind in John chapter 9 that we'll see later, we assume sometimes that all blind, lame, or paralyzed people are innocent. That may not necessarily be the case. And so when we put today's healing episode alongside the one from John chapter 9, we we can see that any assumption that we make about people who are suffering is dangerously misguided. What does appear to be fairly clear here is that one man was innocent, but this man was not. Having a disability or, or suffering from a chronic infirmity does not automatically make someone either a good person or a bad person. Again, we don't know for sure how long this man had been inside at this, this complex here at the Pool of Bethesda. Uh, we know that he had been an invalid, meaning literally weak, feeble, without strength for 38 years. Exactly how many of those years had been spent right here beside the pool at the Sheep Gate is unknown. But it was, it was probably a, 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 a length of time anyway. The sad man, so weary of his condition which had plagued him for so many years that he doesn't even answer Jesus directly. It's really kind of an odd response. If you'd been in this condition for that long, Jesus comes along and says, do you want to be healed? His response is not, as we would assume, yeah, of course I do. Are you kidding me? No, what he actually offers is an excuse based on an inability to get into the water that was based in superstition, really. But this water would be stirred at a particular time, and the first person who got into the water after the stirring would be healed. That's what he was clinging to. That was his response, was to kind of make some excuse. So he's clearly not demonstrating faith in Jesus, nor is he asking for healing from Jesus. Far from it. He, He appears to be somewhat frustrated, hopeless, not trusting, not expecting. Nevertheless, please don't miss this, despite this man's sad condition, his hopeless disposition, his sinful state, his lack of faith, Jesus heals him instantly and powerfully. You know what this tells me? At least for me personally, what I sometimes struggle with in contexts like this is that I just don't fully understand the sovereignty of God. Because check this out, I'm not God. And sometimes it just doesn't make sense. And once again, I want you to notice here, this, he does so by speaking his word. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now, there's a second group that we need to look at in this narrative, and that is the legalistic, blind religious leaders of that day. We find them often. Uh, the, The man did exactly what Jesus told him to do, but we don't see him thanking Jesus or praising God. Anything like this that we would expect to see uh, is interrupted by a couple of things. Jesus apparently kind of slips away quietly into the crowd, and then the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem see him carrying his bedroll, and they chastise him for breaking the Sabbath. 
Now, we'll be looking more specifically at the Sabbath next week. But today, I want to focus on the legalistic attitude and the obvious spiritual blindness of these religious leaders. There is something deeply wrong and twisted with the attitude of someone who would walk into this scene, immediately condemn this healed man for carrying his bed on the Sabbath. He's just been healed of a 38-year debilitating condition. And all that they can see is his law-breaking and bed-carrying. This rule was not actually part of God's law, but was a man-made tradition added to it. In other words, it was classic legalism. Legalism is a word that is often overused, misunderstood. We talked about it pretty extensively in our study of the book of Galatians some time ago. It's often thrown around by people who disagree with something that we may hold to, um, you know, a standard based in, in Scripture or something of that nature, and so it's kind of like, Quit being so legalistic. It's just a cover-up many times for I don't feel like keeping that command of God, so leave me alone. But here's something we need to realize right up front, which may also challenge our dangerous spiritual assumptions. Legalism is not obedience, and obedience is not legalism. Legalism never actually focuses on obeying God, and, and, and it's never legalistic to sincerely obey God from the heart. Okay, so don't don't try to equate those two. Legalism is an unhealthy obsession and focus on rules specifically in two different ways. Remember this. Legalism seeks to keep the rules as a way of earning favor with God. And so legalism is opposed to grace. It's very self-centered and manipulative, obeying a rule in order to get something from God. Legalism also seeks many times, particularly in the context of John's gospel here, to add man-made rules to God's law. Legalism believes in rule keeping so much that it focuses on how many rules can be actually added to God's law uh, to make the list of rules longer and, and, and as in their minds, more clear, easier to follow. So in legalism, God's law actually gets set aside in favor of man-made rules. So legalism is not only anti-grace, it's really actually anti-law. Which may seem like a contradiction, but it's true. If I give you a list of 10 things that I want you to do, and your response is making a list of 50 things that you will do instead, you have basically set aside my commands for your own. That's what was happening with these religious leaders. True legalism is a deadly spiritual poison which replaces God with man. It's based in religion, and we know the difference, right? Religion is man doing everything that he can to get to God. So that is often based in legalism, rule-keeping, all those things. I'll earn my way to God. These religious leaders had drunk so deeply of the poison of legalism that they were blind to the work of God and condemned when they should have rejoiced, they criticized when they should have celebrated. But then in the midst of all this, I don't want you to miss this, we have a mighty and merciful Savior. Because in contrast to the blind legalism of the Jewish religious leaders stands our wonderful Savior. 
he sought out, sovereignly sought out, this sad, sinful man to heal his body, and now he goes on to search for him in the temple. We're told that afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, you may be surprised to hear Jesus say something which may sound at first, at first like condemnation to our ears, but nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus knows this man's heart. And he knows that this man, uh, he knows what he needs is deep spiritual salvation, not just physical healing. It, it would have been unkind, it would have been unloving, it would have been unmerciful for Jesus to have healed this man's body and not address the deeper spiritual need. This man is currently in his sin. So Jesus' words, sin no more, or quite literally, stop sinning, which are addressing not so much some sin that this man may have committed 38 years ago, which led to his medical condition, but to his current state of sinful rebellion against God. Jesus was mighty, and he was merciful enough to save this man from his sin just as surely as he delivered him from his physical disability. So that begs a question here. Do we see here a man redeemed? Or just physically healed. Sadly, we don't have any strong reason to believe that this man was redeemed. Now, I don't say that lightly. The text simply does not indicate any faith response by this healed man. He does not believe in Jesus, confess Jesus as Lord. We have no indication that he thanked Jesus, worshipped Jesus. We also don't know his name, so he remains anonymous, which means he probably was not a part of the, the early church. What he does do is report Jesus to the authorities. Apparently he was concerned that he might be in trouble with the authorities for carrying his, his bed on the Sabbath. He had told them initially that the man who healed them told him to carry his mat. We could surmise that he, he hadn't yet learned his name. Apparently, it was a fairly brief encounter before Jesus kind of slipped off into the crowd. But then when they had this encounter in the temple, it, it becomes apparent that maybe he did learn the name of Jesus. And so scripture tells us that then he went to tell the authorities the name of the one who had healed them. Don't think of this as this man testifying to who Jesus is. It's more like tattling on Jesus. And John is intentionally, I think, painting us a picture of this man that will be contrasted with the man born blind whom Jesus heals in John chapter 9. When we get to that story, we're going to draw out the, the contrast more clearly. But what is clear is that the man in John chapter 9 comes to salvation. You see that in the text. While this man apparently does not. This strongly challenges, again, some deeply held assumptions. We already saw that Jesus did not heal this man because he was trusting in Jesus, or he had, he had made the, you know, it, the, the needle move over into the red enough to the point that finally he reached that point, that magical moment, where it's like, finally you have enough faith, you're healed. That's, that's not, clearly not what happens here. So we already saw that this man, Jesus did not heal this man because he was trusting in Jesus, seeking healing from Jesus. We may have assumed at this point that the man would come to faith in Jesus. He must be one of Jesus' own, one of his chosen ones, right? But not necessarily. Physical healing is not given in response to a particular amount of faith. It's not necessarily an indication that God has chosen someone for salvation. So this also challenges another assumption. Last week, 
We talked about how many people are angry with God, disillusioned with God because he has not answered their prayer requests in a certain way. He doesn't seem to be performing the way that they think he should. God's not fair in the way that I think he should be fair. Here's a picture of the opposite situation. This man received the answer for which he had longed for 38 years. He had what his heart so deeply desired. He was supernaturally healed by Jesus himself. Now, does this bring him to salvation? Apparently not. Some people think, if only God would give me blank. If only God would do this, then I would believe in him and I would follow him. But that's not true. This man got what he most wanted, but he missed out on what he most needed. If you didn't hear anything I've said up to this point, I hope you hear that. This man got what he most wanted, but he missed out on what he most needed. He received physical healing, which I'm sure he desired, but not the salvation that would truly change his life forever. So this morning, as we close and prepare to share together in the Lord's Supper, our deacons will be coming in just a few moments. They'll be distributing the elements. We'll give you some further instruction in just a moment. But as we begin to prepare our hearts for that, I wonder this morning, how are you approaching Jesus? It is important to us, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, that your testimony is one of faith in Jesus Christ because what we are doing, as it will be explained to you, is a proclamation. It's a declaration. But I wonder this morning, are you looking to him with a half-hearted faith, hoping he might give you what you really want, but unsure of whether you can really trust him? Do you understand what your deepest need is? That it's a need for forgiveness and redemption to have your sins covered, cleansed, washed away to be reconciled with holy God? Do you understand your need for salvation? And to daily proclaim to yourself the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? You're approaching Jesus as the only one who can save? How sad would it be if you receive from God everything you want, but never receive the eternal life that you really need. The man Jesus healed, so focused on getting what he wanted that it appears he missed the grace of God. Jesus literally stood in front of him twice and he missed it. The Jewish religious leaders, as you study throughout the scriptures, you find that they consistently missed it. They missed the point. Here's the Messiah that you've been talking about, longing for, looking for. Here he is, and you missed it. You ever found yourself looking for something? And you look and look and look, and you can even ask your wife, guys, hey, where is that thing? And when you finally find it, it's like right there in plain sight. And you're like, if that would have been a snake, it would have bit me. That's what it appears happened many times with Jesus. It's like, I'm, I'm longing for something. I'm longing for this. I'm, I'm looking for this. I'm, and he's right there. But miss it. They miss it. And so as we prepare for the table, I want to invite you to turn your thoughts and your prayers, your attention, and your desires to Jesus and only Jesus, as we sang this morning. Look to him to save 
and strengthen and heal and transform you. He is able. He is willing. And so, Father, we thank you. We praise you for your word. Lord, as we look at this text, we find ourselves, we just marvel at the sovereignty of God. Your word even tells us that the Holy Spirit is like the wind, something we can't control as much as we may try. And we find it so difficult in our humanness to acknowledge the sovereignty of God. So we wrestle with things like, why does it appear that bad things happen to good people? And at the same time, it appears that good things happen to bad people. Lord, help us to trust you as sovereign God. To trust the details to you. Lord, I thank you for your saving power, your love, your mercy, and your grace extended to us. I pray for those here today who may be struggling with doubt and fear, uncertain about who you really are, and even what you've come to do, confused that perhaps you've come just to make our lives better here, when in fact you've come to make dead people alive. the good news of the gospel. Lord, we thank you and we praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.